This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. The rhetoric that we should be using about immigration policy is that we are a country of immigration. We should welcome that tradition. It's done wonders for our country. It's been very valuable. But in a world of 7 billion people, we do have to have limits and we have to be able to meter it effectively. Many people have resigned from the Trump administration, some because they are targets of criminal prosecutions or for violations of government regulations, others due to serious ethical lapses. Few have left as a matter of principle. David Martin is one of the few. Martin was not technically a member of the Trump administration. He served as a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Advisory Council, a body created, as its name makes clear, to give advice to the Secretary of Homeland Security, currently Kirsten Nielsen. David Martin is a professor emeritus at the University of Virginia School of Law, specializing in immigration and refugee law. And he had previously served as general counsel of the Immigration and Naturalization Service during the Clinton administration, and then as principal deputy general counsel at Homeland Security from 2009 through 2010. So he is precisely the kind of expert that DHS should ask to serve on its advisory council. He had deep knowledge of the law and extensive government experience. But on July 16th of this year, Professor Martin resigned from the DHS advisory council, along with three other members of the council. And he resigned based on principle. David Martin, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. When were you appointed to the DHS Advisory Council? I was appointed in the middle of 2014, and then I got a renewal of my term in December of 2016. What were your main functions on the council? Uh, Members of the council are drawn from a wide range of backgrounds, and we're there to advise the secretary on whatever might be useful to the secretary. That could be done one-on-one or sometimes on conference calls or Uh, in face-to-face meetings, which were infrequent with the full council. Uh, And then also uh, members of the council serve on specific subcommittees to address in detail some issues and make a report to the council for the full council to deliberate on and present very formally to the secretary. And what were some of the issues that you dealt with as a member of the advisory council? Uh, Well, the, the, the issues ranged over the full menu of topics that fall within the Department of Homeland Security, the ones I was most directly involved with where I served on some subcommittees had to do with immigration. One of them specifically to review some issues about the Secure Communities Program, which uh, was a program that provided for uh, links between state and local law enforcement on the one hand and immigration enforcement on the other hand. That was back in uh, 20, really before I was a full member of the council. And then a second one that was done in 2016 on the use of private detention facilities for immigration detention. Now, in uh, your very eloquent uh, resignation letter, uh, you mentioned a number of issues, but I wonder if you'd be willing uh, to read the paragraph, uh, the third paragraph uh, of the letter. Sure. I have spent much of my working life studying and implementing effective, realistic asylum adjudication systems and also trying to lay the groundwork for serious and resolute immigration enforcement. 
I know that both objectives can be reached in humane ways. From the beginning, however, the administration has opted instead for gratuitously severe actions in the immigration arena, such as the travel ban and the termination of the DACA program. Combined with commitment to a vast wall that no serious professional thinks is an effective way to spend $25 billion enforcement dollars. These actions have fueled polarization, alienated state and local governments, and moved us much further from a sustainable, effective, and strategically sensible immigration enforcement program. So these were happening while you remember the council, but then there was a particular precipitating event that led to your resignation. What was that? And that was the separation, the policy for separating children from their parents along the southwest border as they were detained. Uh, there had been concerns about, uh, among many of the members, about their ongoing relationships with the council as uh, immigration policy tightened up and as some other uh, controversial actions were taken by the administration. But uh, uh, for, for, for many of us, this was the key event. This was the time when there were four of us who were willing to band together and uh, announce our resignations. Uh, in your letter, you say that the that policy was executed, you say, with astounding casualness about precise tracking of family relations. Uh, what do you what did you mean by that? Well, it, it, it struck me and this wasn't wasn't immediately apparent in the early weeks of the uh, of the policy the the early weeks focused on the drama of the small children who were there without a parent and without any other very effective way to comfort them or explain to them what was going on. But what became effective later was, uh, became, a, became apparent later, was that at the end of the process, when reunification should have taken place, when the enforcement or the detention for criminal procedures was over, there was no very good system for actually getting the parents back together with the children. And this was very surprising to me because even under the most expansive notion, I think, that anybody has put forward about the authority to separate children from their parents, at the time of apprehension, there's no authority, there's nothing that could suggest that that should become a permanent bar or that one should be, should not strive as hard as possible to get the children back together with the parents at the end. So we've been seeing that play out in a much more dramatic way and what's unfolded actually since July 16th. You also uh, mentioned uh, in your letter that you thought the administration was not adequately committed to the rule of law in immigration matters. What were your examples there? Well, the first one I would point to was the Joe Arpaio pardon. That was a pardon for the sheriff of Maricopa County who had uh, been, uh, who had lost uh, civil litigation and was subject to specific injunctions from a court as to what he was supposed to do to cure civil rights violations committed by his department. He was found to have defied those to have uh, to, to have failed to enforce specific instructions from a court, and so the court uh, initiated criminal contempt proceedings against Sheriff Arpaio. That's that's really a very major statement. Uh, it's rare that that kind of a device is used. Criminal contempt, and he was found guilty uh, of that offense, and uh, and was sentenced. For one of the very first pardons that President Trump issued, he singled out Joe Arpaio and pardoned him for that offense. I just thought that was such a damaging blow to the rule of law. The role of courts is crucial. The ability of courts to enforce their findings, 
course, subject to appeals and so forth, which which had been uh, exhausted in this case, I believe. Uh, it's so crucial for them to be able to have full authority to enforce their own orders. So at that time, I was very serious about uh, uh, resigning. That that also came just two weeks after the events in Charlottesville, which is my hometown, felt very severely by me and my my neighbors and fellow citizens of Central Virginia. And the, the president's casual remarks there also seemed to indicate a lack of commitment to the rule of law. So I, I was interested, I started thinking seriously about resigning then, uh, talked with some others about that. Others weren't quite ready to do that. They, were st they still had hopes. I still had some hopes that there might be room for individuals to hear, to, for officials to listen to our advice. But by the time of the child separation policy, at least for four of us, uh, those hopes had uh, disappeared. If uh, you were back on the advisory council in another administration, what would be some of the top policies you would be recommending for Homeland Security and for our immigration system as a whole? Well, we really need to get back to a sustainable and humane but serious immigration enforcement policy. I think it's, well, it's possible as a matter of policy science to map that out. Um, where we are now politically with such divisions over this issue, it's hard to see how you get from, from here to there. But so, so my advice would have to be tailored to what the conditions are at the time. But uh, I, would, I would have two basic principles. One, we do need a serious ongoing enforcement capability, but one with provisions for political asylum uh, and for humane treatment of the people who are subject to enforcement. We need that in part because, as you look around the world right now, the immigration issue concerns, overblown, exaggerated concerns, but, but concerns about uh, unregulated flow have been a major weapon that have been used by right-wing parties in the United States and in Europe to uh, inflame passions and to, um, to undercut a lot of other um, civil rights protections. So I think we need a serious policy that shows that the, that, the, that the migration flow is under control, but that doesn't have to mean that we're um, overly severe. So I would, I would build it. I, I think part of what we have to do to get eventually to a point of serious policy is to have a, 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 an expansive legalization program that provides a status, shields from deportation, people who have been living otherwise lawfully within the United States for a long period of time, take those people out of the enforcement realm, give them a secure status, make it clear to state and local governments that those are not the targets, their, their long-term residents are not the targets of immigration enforcement policy, but that we will be more serious and we hope to gain more cooperation of precisely focused types from state and local law enforcement to do serious enforcement against recent violators and, of course, any new violators. Uh, in your letter, you mentioned that uh, the wall that had been proposed by the president, you said no serious professional thinks it's an effective way to spend money on enforcement. Do you, do you think we've done all we need to do on the southwest border in terms of the massive buildup of the border patrol? Is the border secure or should more be done there? Well, I, I don't think the... The real question is, is the border secure? That's not just a yes or no kind of uh, uh, phenomenon. Uh, we've made great progress in securing the border. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that we, we do no structures. I think there is a case for 
building walls in certain areas for using physical structures as part of the overall control, but it's much more cost effective and much more useful to do that very selectively and to deploy other types, multi-layered strategies for controlling the border. Also, I think we place too much emphasis on just on border control. Overall, a long-term policy has to also be able to address people who happen to get past the border defenses um, and who are in this country. Uh, so I think that's where that's where a lot of the uh, enforcement ought to go. I would include uh, computer-based employment verification screening, a building on what's now known as the E-Verify system, but that needs some tightening up and it needs to address identity fraud issues, uh, but also uh, some seriousness about enforcing final deportation orders once they've been reached, but after a full and fair hearing with ample appeal opportunities. The campaign has started among advocates uh, for immigrants uh, to abolish ICE. That's the expression that's used, abolish ICE. Uh, What are the aims of that uh, movement from your perspective, and what do you think of it? Well, there are are a mix of aims. Uh, For some people, they're just very upset at various actions that the agency has taken over the years and actions that have become more severe under the Trump administration with encouragement, I think, from the White House. Uh, and and uh, they want to abolish ICE as a way of getting rid of some of those more severe kinds of actions. Uh, for others, I think it really reflects a feeling that we should not be doing much interior enforcement, uh, particularly not against people who've lived here peacefully. Uh, I, I think a, an overall system in the long run has to have the capacity to do that kind of immigration enforcement. It's not that you're going to get a free pass after you've been here for two months in some uh, some kind of unlawful status. We, we, need, we need the function. You can call it other things. You can call the agency by another name, but we need those functions. We need to do them seriously. To me, the, the real objection is to the policies, the underlying policies, uh, such as ending DACA, such as expanding the enforcement priorities, uh, such as ending TPS quite as extensively as was done. Uh, and, and, and you're saying you're, you were opposed to those changes in policy? Uh, well, well, I mean, I, I, think, I think there are um, the changes in policy. The, I think we should be talking about changes in policy. We should focus on specific policies that are objectionable and not on trying to uh, pretend that we can solve it by abolishing an agency, because most of those functions are necessarily going to go somewhere else. Reorganization is not really a very satisfactory uh, solution. The real objection is to the nature of the policies, and we should have that kind of a debate, not a debate about reorganization. Well, let's talk about DACA. Um, Would you have advised the president to, to terminate the DACA program? No, clearly not. Uh, to the extent that it was mentioned even informally in some of our meetings, there was a wide array of support among the members of the advisory council to continue the DACA program. And it actually looked like the president was leaning in that way for quite some time, as you recall. Uh, but uh, in the end, uh, the, a lot of state attorneys general uh, basically called his bluff and uh, and uh, negotiations fell apart and, and DACA was terminated. Then other courts stepped in and say, said that that termination was invalid, that the reasons given a claim that DACA was unconstitutional, uh, 
those reasons were not valid. So we're in a situation now where it continues, uh, at least for people who already had once had the status, and uh, the debate is ongoing. I suspect at some point uh, those court stays will be ended. Uh, the administration, if they really want to terminate DACA, could find a way to shape the policy and justify it that they could sustain it. I think that's very bad policy, and I think it'll actually be and will remain quite unpopular with the American voters. One of the other controversial um, policies adopted by the Trump administration was mentioned specifically in Elizabeth uh, Holtzman's resignation letter. She was a, another member of the council who resigned along with you, not strictly within the purview of DHS, more in State Department, but it was the reduction in the entry of refugees, uh, set at about 110,000 in the last year of the Obama administration. We may not get even to 25,000 refugees this year under the Trump administration. I wonder what your thoughts are on, on the current refugee policy in the country. Yeah, that's that's moving in exactly the wrong direction. It's, it's at a time when the world as a whole faces more displacement than almost any time in, in the past. Uh, distant resettlement, which we're talking about here, the quota refugee program, uh, that's not going to be a full solution or solution for more than a fraction of the people who have been displaced. But it's a really important fraction. It signals commitment uh, from the world community. It helps to encourage first asylum countries to continue to provide shelter uh, in their location just across the border from the country uh, of origin. Uh, it's, it's very important to continue that. I fully supported the Obama administration's initial setting of numbers, uh, which was at, uh, I believe, 110,000. The the, the first year that the Trump administration said it, I know there was a big internal battle over this with competing camps, some supporting something like 10 or 12,000, others urging going back up to 100,000. It came out to set the formal number at 45,000 for the fiscal year that we're just about to end. But the processing also has been very slow and meticulous, and I, I think deliberately so, so that we're probably going to reach only a little over half of that number. That's just the wrong place to be in the face of the kinds of needs that exist. David, when when Donald Trump announced his um, candidacy for president, he made comments about people being sent from Mexico, criminals and rapists and others, and he's continued on a very harsh rhetoric against immigrants up to the current day. I wonder how you see that in terms of overall effective enforcement of our immigration laws and what's the rhetoric you think we should be adopting about the American immigration system? Well, I think clearly those, those statements uh, were a deliberate effort to, uh, to heighten tensions, um, to draw upon, uh, to, to divide our society, um, to, to pick out scapegoats, uh, most of those kinds of claims are clearly um, clearly wrong. It's it's not immigrants that cause most of our crime. Uh, in fact, uh, the undocumented population here has lower rates of crime than than the native born. Uh, and of course, there should be seriousness about effective enforcement against people who have committed serious crimes. But 
it's just it's obvious that that was part of an overall strategy, which proved to be successful to activate a certain part of our population, uh, exaggerate the fears, get them to vote uh, in a certain way. The rhetoric we should be using about immigration policy is that we are a country of immigration. We should welcome that tradition. It's done wonders for our country. It's been very valuable. But uh, in a world of seven billion people, we do have to have limits and we have to be able to meter it effectively. I like the idea of having basically a million people who can come legally for permanent residence each year, which has been the pattern for overall for the, the past decade or so. Uh, I think that's valuable, but we do need to have, we do need to reassure the population that basically the system is under control. We're making deliberate choices of both about permanent immigration and about those who come here on a temporary basis. And if they come on a temporary basis and it's not extended, they should leave at the end of that time and we will be serious about uh, enforcing that. So that's part of being a nation of immigrants, but it's it's got to be a nation of immigrants within the boundaries of what's politically realistic and possible in a heavily populated globe. And that to me, it will be, it'll be a, a major achievement if we can hang on to a system that allows for a rich array of temporary migration to this country for a variety of purposes, study, tourism, and so forth, and business, uh, and also a, a million new residents each, each year. You've mentioned that the United States gives about a million green cards a year to immigrants. Um, you think that's a, a reasonable number. There's legislation that's been introduced in Congress that the president has supported that would cut that number uh, by about uh, half, down to about a half a million, and restrict the categories of people who can enter. Why do you think a million is, is the right number and not half a million or not three million? Well, there's no real scientifically correct number. I think a million a year has worked reasonably well for us. Uh, it doesn't overtax the capacity of uh, our society, speaking very generally, to integrate and welcome the newcomers. Um, and, and I think in, well, with the pressures that are underway now, as exemplified in the RAISE Act, the, the, the act that would cut it, I think it'll be a significant achievement if we can hold it at about that at about that level. So I, it's not a scientific issue, but I think there's no there's no solid case to be made that I can see that uh, we need to slash the admissions in half. I think particularly if we can do a, a better job of, uh, in long-term enforcement against new unauthorized migration, we should be able to sustain a high level. Uh, so e even if we were to keep uh, uh, a million as the number each year for 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 green cards for new for new immigrants coming to the United States, there are people who say within that number we should be adjusting uh, the categories. That is, more should be devoted to people with skills uh, and high uh, high reward employment, uh, and less to family based migration to so called chain migration. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think family migration is far more valuable than it's usually given credit for. Uh, people who come based on family relationships have a generally have a built-in network to help them make the transition into this country and to find their way uh, and make their own contributions. In the abstract, it seems to make sense to pro to provide more positions for skills. Skill, people with particular skills or, or talents. And I don't have an objection to some adjustments along those lines. 
But I, I, many of those people who make that argument are the same ones who say in other settings that the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. The government's not the right uh, mechanism for choosing who's for identifying who's going to succeed in the realms of commerce and business and science. Um, we should get government out of that. I've seen up front, uh, up close, the way that the uh, categories work for selecting people based on skills. And we get a lot of skilled people, but there's not any exact science in there. And there are a number of people who come in in that way who won't necessarily make these great contributions. On the other hand, a lot of people who came in in the family categories have made those kinds of contributions in a wide array of circumstances throughout our throughout our whole system. So I would I would uh, I'm not opposed to some adjustments there, but I think we should sustain a high level of of family migration. We might need to be more selective about the exact categories in a world of seven billion people. Maybe we can't provide a preference category for sisters and brothers of U.S. citizens, for example, but I would still sustain a high level of family migration and let people come in and make their own way, make their contributions. A lot of people uh, will do that uh, in ways that couldn't have been predicted at the time when the screening decision took place. Yeah. David, I want to close here with a, the final paragraph of your letter, which I will read. You said, I greatly valued my time as an officer of DHS and then worked hard to contribute constructively as a member uh, of the advisory committee. Many friends remain at the department and I respect their ongoing efforts to fulfill a complex and challenging mission. I regret that the administration's actions have pushed me and several other colleagues to this departure from the council. Would you like to say anything more about that final paragraph? Well, it's, um, it's been a, a poignant uh, period for me. I've heard from many former students who have taken up government posts at DHS, many at DHS also in other departments and are concerned about some of the policies and where they're going. I mostly encourage them to remain, uh, to have an ongoing solid influence in whatever way they can in helping to shape the details of policy in a more humane way and many of them have, have taken that advice. Uh, in general, I support that rather than resigning. But for those of us on the advisory council, it was clear we our advice was really not going to be sought or be effective in that area. In a way, it, it, it's a different situation if you're a career civil servant rather than a member of an advisory council. So I, I regret that it did have to come to this departure, but I think that was the right move. And I admire my students who have remained and, and friends and colleagues who have remained and are still working and looking to a time when there will be different leadership and a more sensible and strategic policy that can be implemented. And I think if that happens, the American people will be behind those changes in policy to a more humane and sensible set of policies. As I read the polls on this, I don't think there's a single major Trump administration uh, position on immigration that commands a majority support uh, in the United States among the populace here, whether it's the cuts in refugees, the ending of DACA, the building of the wall, the separation of kids, all of these policies have been uh, opposed by a majority of Americans. And maybe that does give us some hope for a, a better set of policies in the future. Yeah, it's been a pretty amazing and discouraging couple of years, but I think there are elements in the current picture that point to our being able one day to overcome this 
unfortunate period and rebuild a more sensible system. David, thanks so much for, for being with us today. Thanks, Alex, for the opportunity. You have been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Technical assistance is provided by Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112. Our themes were composed by Eli Elenikoff. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That is tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com.